Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Patrick Holden and Michael Lerner as they discuss the global food movement. Patrick Holden is the founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust, a British biodynamic dairy farmer and advisor to the Prince of Wales. Patrick Holden, welcome to the new school. Thank you very much for inviting me to come here. Patrick is the founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust. And between 1995 and 2010, he was the director of the Soil Association. These are both in the United Kingdom. And um, he has spearheaded a number of prominent food campaigns around BSE, pesticide residues, and genetically modified foods. More recently, he was a member of the United Kingdom's government's working group on the Foresight Report into the Future of Food and Farming. And he is an advisor to the Prince of Wales International Sustainability Unit. Um, There's much more I could say, Patrick, and we'll work pieces of it in, but I guess the place I'd like to start is that you and I are old hippies who uh, came to California in the early 1970s and it changed our lives. Uh, yes, but I got there before you came. <laughs> That's before right. You, <laughs> you um, got here in 1971, I got here in 1972. Um, yeah, my father was a visiting professor at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he came, even though I was already 20 by then, uh, I followed. So I spent a very um, important year of my life Mm-hmm. falling under the influences of the thinking of that time. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I got on the plane to go back to London, uh, there was a big part of me which didn't really want to leave at all. And I think that part remains. So every time I approach the Bay Area, I always have a sense of um, homecoming or second mm-hmm. homecoming. Um, and I can honestly say that the impulse of much of my life arose, my life's work, and what I've done since uh, arose from some of the ideas and the impressions that I received when I was here. Mm-hmm. What were the most important of those ideas and impressions? I think it was... Uh, I remember the excitement of arriving here, because I came over from the East Coast, uh, where my cousins live. and That was in um, Boston and New York. Um, so the, the impression of the place, the energy of, of this landscape, the geology of it, uh, obviously the climate, but there's something about the atmosphere here which is, in my experience, quite unique and doesn't seem to... Um, I'm sure things are changing all the time. I believe that everything must change, but it greets you when you arrive here. And, of course, at that time... There were a lot of new ideas arising, and it felt as if this place was the epicenter of a new stream of uh, thinking about the environment. I, I read The Greening of America, and that touched me and came across interesting people. Um, and I think out of that came a conviction, which possibly was already there in, in a seed form beforehand, that we were on the edge of an ecological catastrophe and the only sensible thing was to get back to the land and set up a rural, communi- a rural community, which is exactly what I did when I got back. So you and some friends got together on a, an old farm in Wales, right, and set up a commune. Yes, yeah, so six of us, uh, we, we literally, we, we kind of, 
we thought that Wales, Wales was, was a dreamy place where there was cheap land. And I once described it as Britain's California, only with more rain. And uh, uh, we found a farm on a hilltop about 10 miles in from the coast. And uh, it was hopelessly run down with no proper track or buildings or water supply, uh, except from the heavens. And we moved in. And the first winter was pretty bad. And by the second winter, the social strains were showing. And then one of the couples whose parents had bought the farm and given the commune a tenancy uh, decided to leave. And the farm was put on the market. But luckily, a woofer who was there at the time, who'd inherited some money from his grandfather, uh, decided to <laughs> buy the farm. Uh, and give me a tenancy because he wanted to make films in London. Now, I'm not familiar with the term woofer. Oh, sorry. Willing, willing workers on organic farms. Oh, okay. It, actually, he wasn't a woofer, but he was, he was actually the brother of a woman who I was at Emerson College with uh, the year before we moved to Wales, after I got back from California. Uh, to study biodynamic agriculture. So I did the foundation course in biodynamic agriculture at, uh, at uh, Emerson College in Sussex. And that was uh, that plus a year on a commercial and quite intensive dairy farm was my grounding in agriculture before moving to the farm because I had a London upbringing in and around. My father's a doctor, a psychiatrist, a, a child psychoanalyst, actually, uh, who then got, went back into general practice medicine before he retired. But my, my influences as a child were urban. And my glimpses of nature were on holiday in wild places like Hebridean Islands and farms, a couple of farms I visited when I was young. So today, that same farm is the oldest organic farm in Wales for sure, is that correct? It's the longest established organic dairy farm dairy in farm Wales. in Wales, thank you. Um, yeah. And um, so you took it essentially from nothing to uh, describe what it is today. Well, it's, um, we own 135 acres, although the route map to ownership was a long one mm -hmm. and still involves an ethical bank uh, who have more than, you know, quite a lot of the equity. Um, I think that's interesting because access to land for young people is a very challenging thing. And it took me kind of 30 years, a day job, a lot of luck, and then a big bank loan to finally cross the threshold of ownership, which I did in 2004. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until well over 30 years at the farm, most of which during the period of which I had very little security because I, my, I had a tenancy. Then my landlord came home and uh, we had an agreement that I wouldn't stand in his way if he wanted to come back. So I became the junior partner in the farm for the next 15 years. And then finally he decided he wanted out, so I bought him out. But without all those lucky circumstances and a day job, I never would have been able to finally occupy the farm. So today that is 135 acres plus another mm, 200 or so acres of rented land, some of which is around the circumference of the farm. And our striving, as it was in the beginning, uh, is to be as sustainable as possible. 
when we first started, there was no organic market and there were no standards. So we thought, well, why don't we write down what we're doing, or at least trying to do, more or less on the back of an envelope, and take our story to the public? Because uh, during those times, the Common Agricultural Policy, our equivalent to the Farm Bill, was providing very positive subsidies for every litre of milk and tonne of grain that was produced. And that meant if you used lots of nitrogen and other chemical inputs, you would make more money. So we were deliberately disadvantaging ourselves right from the start because we thought, well, we want to farm with nature and farm as sustainably as possible, but that meant we made less money. So we thought, well, if we reach out to the consumer and ask them to pay the difference, that would help us survive. And having drafted the first draft of the dairy standards, which then found their way into the UK government standards and then the EU and then subsequently the National Organic Programme here in the USA, uh, I can say that the original intention of the development of the organic market uh, was not to create a separate movement from the mainstream agriculture, but much more as a means of being able to keep going because our idea was that the whole original idea was really that all farming ought to become more sustainable. And it wasn't a market proposition that drew us into organic standards. It was a, an economic survival strategy. I just think that's worth saying because yes. it's, uh, it's, it's so relevant. You are widely considered, although you're n you don't have a high public profile in the United States with the general public, but among people working in the field, you are widely considered, uh, certainly in, in the United Kingdom, um, one of the great communicators of the ideas of organic agriculture. Uh, Prince Charles, I know, uh, has said that, uh, that your leadership of the Soil Association, so just for example, during the decade that you led the Soil Association, um, uh, sales of organic food uh, rose from uh, 50 million pounds to 2 billion pounds, and the area of organic land rose from 0.1% to 4% of the United Kingdom's total agricultural land. Um, and uh, so, and I think you yourself have said that what you've been able to do is take some of the great original ideas of organic uh, agriculture and communicate them as broadly as possible. Is that a fair? statement of what part of your mission has been? I think that the reason why the organic market grew mm -hmm. was because the public, through the work of the Soil Association, mm -hmm. but also other organizations, yeah. um, came to an understanding of the principles and issues which constitute, at least on a good day, constitute and manifest as the organic standards and came to trust the system through the advocacy and the education about the principles, the component parts. And I think there is a huge risk uh, within the organic, so-called organic movement to forget that the founders, people like Sir Albert Howard or Lady Balfour, uh, they were not interested in promoting an organic market. They were interested in the connection between the health of soil, plants, animals, and people, and deeper than that, mm -hmm. the spiritual and cultural health of society as a whole, and mm -hmm. the connections between all those things. And the, their thinking and their impulse, which really arose at the beginning of the 20th century, 
and then was taken on by people like me towards the end of the 20th century was about huge ideas, far-reaching ideas. They were challenging the orthodoxies, which were beginning, beginning to go mainstream, uh, which dominated 20th century agriculture. And I think it is their ideas that we need to remain true to and not forget that the market, as I've just tried to explain, was, was a means to an end. It wasn't the end itself. Mm -hmm. My friend and colleague, Tom Sargent, who is with us, um, is one of us who is passionately interested in these issues. And Tom, you, you uh, uh, facilitated a conversation with one of the authors of a major United Nations report on sustainable agriculture and its role in feeding the world. Could you just say a few words about that? Okay, um, that report was the ISTAT report. Are people familiar with that? ISTAT. ISTAT, and that stands for International Assessment of Agriculture Science Technology and Development. But there's another word in there which was called knowledge. But ISTAT doesn't include the K, uh, which was an interesting aspect of it because knowledge is uh, maybe, to a large extent, one of the things that we're really uh, interested in here. And what, what, it, what it came to in terms of conclusion was that uh, it was that, that organic practices could basically feed the world. Uh, this was based, this was a study, broad study uh, uh, with scientists. Uh, that rural culture was the thing to focus on and to build to put culture back in uh, agriculture. That respect for traditional knowledge was uh, key. Uh, Agroecology uh, is, is, is really the, the, the future, and that uh, maintaining biodiversity uh, is really part of the role of agriculture. Uh, and that the, one of the means uh, and important aspect of this is that women who produce 70% of the food in the world uh, need to be uh, considered in all aspects of, uh, of a future form of, of, of agriculture. Uh, and that, and that um, I think one other important aspect of what this report did was it was, uh, um, was emphasizing the multifunctional nature of an agricultural community. Uh, that, that the monocrop or the monocultural approach is where it, what has really uh, gotten us into uh, into, into trouble. And, 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 and that report, I mean, interestingly, here are a lot of people who know about uh, or are interested in agriculture. This was a major UN study, involved hundreds of scientists, uh, and uh, was not ultimately approved by the United States, uh, Canada, and Australia, I believe. Um, uh, but it was, uh, it, it, set, it, set a, it set a vision, you know, I think that uh, many, many uh, of us are are but just to underscore this, just uh, so this major UN report with how many scientists? There were several hundred. Several hundred scientists yeah. came to the conclusion that the way to feed the world was organic agriculture. Right? Yes, because of the impacts on you know. Right. Um, well, they used the word quite extensively, agroecological, yeah. uh, which is. A proxy, I suppose, for uh, if if the organic system, as I said, on a good day, is a carrier right. for agroecological principles, the the uh, the thrust of the report was that we could produce sufficient food of high quality to feed uh, to provide a nourishing diet for a peak population, at least in principle, in theory, uh, using 
farming practices which were systemic and worked with the grain of nature rather than the current paradigm, which is basically monoculture and high levels of inputs, which are having damaging consequences uh, right. on many levels. So the Sustainable Food Trust, which you now are the founder of, and it's one of the Prince, Prince Charles's charities. No, it's not yet, oh, although, okay. uh, you know, I did have a conversation with him about okay. whether maybe one day he might uh, consider becoming his patron. Sorry to be inaccurate about that. Uh, so you described... He hasn't said no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in advance of the, I'm in advance of the field here. You're ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> ahead of the curve. So uh, it has three major components, leadership and collaboration, communications and citizen engagement, research and policy. Uh, but perhaps a more direct way to approach that is um, your point of view is very similar to that of the, of the UN report. And when I asked you what the takeaways were that you would want us to understand today, the very first one that you offered was that the current food system is unsustainable and needs to change. Where do you go from there? Well, uh, I think we have to start with... Um, coming to a, an understanding of what it is exactly about the current food system uh, which can't sustain, because there's an assumption that mm -hmm. lots of things are wrong, but we need to understand the granular detail of it, mm -hmm. because I think in order for the change to happen, it has to be driven by the power of informed public opinion. And that means by definition that the public have to understand exactly what's wrong and be able to muster the arguments, the critiques of it uh, in a powerful way in order to get uh, eventually policymakers and others to help uh, undergo the transition towards more sustainable food systems. And that really is our mission. If I was to describe our mission in a phrase, it would be to accelerate the transition towards more sustainable food systems working in those three areas that you just described. And if I was to attempt to try to describe what's wrong with uh, the current food system. Um, it's completely reliant, or nearly completely reliant, on the use of, on mining natural capital using non-renewable external inputs to, su to sustain the supply of food. And if you were to look at it in accounting terms, it's not, the balance sheet's not reflecting the loss of the natural capital. And the natural capital is running out. The water, the fertility of the soil itself, the fossil fuels, the minerals, all these things are being used as if they were inexhaustible. And they're not. They're finite. And I believe that we have to move with all our food farming and food systems away from that umbilical dependence on non-renewable resources towards resilient and self-sustaining systems which are cellular but also scalable but need to be understood at the cellular level by which I mean that if you can understand, I believe in the idea that if you can understand one thing really well that knowledge is transferable so if you apply that to food if you understand how a, a farm can operate as an organism as an ecosystem, a little miniature ecosystem, self-sufficient in all the main inputs that it needs, energy, fertilizer, which means that you would have to recycle the nutrients really efficiently and not allow any leakage, build fertility through crop rotations, 
minimise emissions and other damaging consequences like environmental pollution or impact on biodiversity, take care of and love the animals, apply the right scale of things. I believe that there is a right scale, which is an ex exploration to get exactly what that means. But for instance, the size of a dairy herd. We have a dairy herd. It's 75 cows. And I believe the right scale of a dairy herd should be defined by the limits of the distance that the dairy herd can walk to grass and back from the milking parlour twice a day. And that will create a self-limiting natu natural maximum herd size. And once you are past that threshold, that means that inevitably the cows will be housed and be it'll become a factory dairy. So the, these, this, this discussion about scale is interesting. And if we can imagine our future food systems like a great vast organism which is healthy at the cellular level and then scaled up, that will give us the tools to start to design the systems we need. Um, which I don't think, as we were discussing earlier, very much work has been done on yet, which means that we, we are admitting, or I think there's a growing realisation even at government level now, that our present food systems are not up to the challenge of feeding the peak population by 2050 against the background of climate change and resource depletion and growing food insecurity. But nobody really has the solution. So instead... Uh, the orthodox discussion is, is about a term which has been called sustainable intensification, which you could see, say is a bit of an oxymoron, um, but it's not properly defined, and if it still means dependence on non-renewable inputs, then it's not truly sustainable. So we, I'm, I'm meaning the food movement, if we are going to be influential in designing the food systems that we need in the future, we need to be very active in our imaginations and in our work in designing the structures from the ground up, but also taking into account great urban centers as to the way we can grow, process, and distribute food as sustainably as possible to the great population centers. And I believe that it sh this, should, this should be based on producing the maximum quantity of staple foods, vegetables, fresh meats, dairy, grains and processing those same foods and distributing them as close as is reasonably possible uh, to the population centres as a direction because clearly you know there are some countries that have a structural deficit of food like Japan and there are some population centres whose food print, footprint is vast but that should be the informing principle along with those um, I think timeless unifying principles which I'm applying on my farm or attempting to, uh, which apply to every food producer in the world. I've travelled a lot, especially recently. I've been in Zimbabwe this year and then Kenya last year and uh, looking at nomadic pastoralists. And I think that this, these same principles of the responsibility of not just maintaining soil fertility but actually building it and all the other things I just mentioned apply and unify all the food producers of the world, which is exciting because although the context is different and the, their application will be different, it does mean that we're all connected. So is what you just said what you think of as the principles of the work we need to do? In other words, when we spoke earlier, you said you thought it would be useful to understand the principles. Have you just given us a summary of the principles, or do you see the principles as another uh, 
another piece of the conversation? Well, I think I probably raced through them at rather okay. a rapid pace, okay. but uh, the stewardship of the soil, mm -hmm. the building, the maintaining and building of soil fertility, mm -hmm. um, the minimizing the use of these non-renewable external inputs, mm -hmm. um, the principle of the law of return, mm -hmm. the recycling, mm -hmm. uh, the issue of scale, mm -hmm. I covered that. Right. Uh, and I think the cultural and social and spiritual dimension are important mm -hmm. as well because uh, work and life on farms of the future must be rewarding and enable people to fulfill themselves mm -hmm. as human beings. And this means that that dimension needs to be there as well, not just the material aspects of feeding mm -hmm. ourselves. So what do you see as the principal barriers to moving toward this system? Maybe one of the greatest barriers is ignorance amongst the vast majority mm -hmm. of citizens, especially those who live in cities, that there's even a problem. Or if there's awareness that there's a problem, uh, not really much understanding about either the, na the precise nature of it or the, the possible best solution. And I think connected to that, the, the part of the fault lies with the food movement because you could argue that for all the work that the food movement has done over the last 30 years, all the many organisations that comprise it, um, we haven't broken through into the mainstream. We've reached a sort of glass ceiling. I, I had a conversation with Michael Pollan a couple of years ago where we were discussing this, and he was saying, you know, if you add really optimistically the, the organic and local food market together, it's probably no more than 5% of total food sales. And mainstream, the industrial model, which is very centralized and globalized with fewer and fewer farmers, packers, abattoirs, distributors and retailers uh, responsible for an ever greater proportion of all the food we eat. That is still not only the dominant model, you could even argue that it's still going in the wrong direction. So the question arises, it's the question you just asked, what will it take to bring about the conditions uh, to enable the food movement to come out of its ghetto and to go mainstream? And I think, so this is, if public ignorance is the principal barrier, then a related challenge is that we, in the food movement, who were so sure of ourselves and thought we were right about everything, need to recognize that the context has now changed and we need for all of agriculture to go on this journey. And it is not helpful, in my opinion, to polarize the issues too much between all the farmers who are farming in a bad way, growing GM crops or whatever it is, and somehow to demonize them, and then all the you know, good people who are growing and buying organic food as being somehow morally superior. Because that, I think, gives rise to a lot of antipathy between the two communities. And what we somehow need to arrive at is a, a collective journey towards more sustainable food production systems with every farmer being involved and every farmer and food producer being able to sort of celebrate the milestones on that journey. Now that may even mean, I think, redefining how we measure the progress because at the moment we have a system where you are either organic or you are not organic. And, you know, that's a big barrier, whereas we need to find a way of rewarding the, the incremental steps. One aspect of the conversation we had over lunch which really interested me was you, you talked about 
the uh, agreement that has actually taken place between the conservation movement and the farming movement. And you said, look, you said the sustainable food movement is a minnow compared to the whale of the conservation movement. And the conservation movement basically made a deal with the farmers where they said, look, let us preserve these little pieces of nature and you guys farm the rest. And, um, and you think that's the wrong deal. I do. I, I think it goes right back to Rachel Carson, right. who basically, ha, ha, she saw the problem, right. which was that agriculture was poisoning nature. Right. But the solution, which has now been institutionalized by the incredibly successful conservation organizations with all their millions of members all over the world who are much more influential on agricultural policy, funnily enough, than the sustainable food movement, has been to protect nature against agriculture. And I think that that was the wrong solution. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a sort of deal. The conservationists went into the room with the big farming organizations and the big farming organizations said, okay, you give us some money, maybe, and we'll give you 5% of our land, the stuff which is the least productive, and you can pay us to do stewardship. But don't tell us what to do on the land outside those areas. And the conservationists were maybe being pragmatic at the time. They thought, okay, that's a deal. So as a result, the farming practices on the areas that were not covered by those agreements remained intensive. And there was a report published in the United Kingdom a couple of months ago called The State of Nature, in which the conservation organizations themselves acknowledged that for all their collective efforts, they'd failed to arrest the decline in nature uh, as a whole. And I think this is an incredible moment. I mean, I, I don't mind, it's, I think it's a big thing that the nature conservation organizations did to admit that. And this gives rise to a new opportunity to change the relationship between the conservationist movement and the sustainable agriculture movement. Because really, if we want to protect nature, we have to change the way we farm. And that's the opportunity that there is now. You're listening to a conversation with Patrick Holden and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. So speaking of changing the way we farm, <coughs> uh, we've been dealing with the pesticide and, and agricultural chemical issue for a long time, but the new kid on the block, relatively speaking, are genetically modified organisms, the GMO crops. And uh, we all know that all over the world, um, GMO crops combined with Roundup pesticides, Roundup-ready GMO crops, are taking over and large swaths of Africa and Latin America are being bought up by these huge industrial conglomerates that are growing these GMO crops and the United States is working hard to break into the European Union and make GMOs the, the standard there against a lot of, of cultural opposition from Europe which doesn't want to eat GMO crops. So in the midst of this, uh, a study came out, known as the Seralini study, uh, that raised some serious questions about the health effects of GMO crops. Briefly, what was the Seralini study? It was the world's first lifetime study uh, looking at the impact on the long-term health outcomes of rats fed a controlled diet compared with 
Roundup Ready Corn not sprayed with Roundup, Roundup Ready Corn sprayed with Roundup, and Roundup on its own introduced through the drinking water at different levels. And the conclusions, which surprised Seralini because it had been set up as a, a study expecting to see kidney and liver um, abnormalities, because that was the indication that Seralini noticed because he had access to the original uh, results of the 90-day feeding study, which Monsanto themselves oversaw for the corn when it was licensed by the regulatory agencies. Uh, so he was surprised by the fact that the incidence of mammary tumors in the female rats in increased by up to 300% over the control rats. And this was right across the board of all the non-control feeding groups. So in other words, the rats fed the Roundup Ready Corn, got the mammary tumors, the rats Roundup Ready Corn and Roundup got them, and the Roundup in the drinking water. And this was released, this report was released on the 19th of September, published in a peer-reviewed online journal last year. But um, various institutions representing the scientific community poured scorn on it and criticized the methodology that Seralini had adopted. And they were successful in dissuading many of the key media commentators from either covering it at all or giving it very much coverage. It was a brilliantly, I would say, probably orchestrated uh, PR campaign um, to undermine the impact of, the, of the, the, the publication of the study. And as we speak now, the jury's out as to uh, what will happen next, although it was absolutely clear to me, because I was at the press briefing in London, um, that what is needed is for the study to be replicated. Because it calls into question, the study basically calls into question the safety of the world's most popular herbicide and also the crop which has been genetically engineered to tolerate it and not die. And it would appear, and this is a hypothesis, that genetically engineering these Roundup-ready crops appears to have an endocrine-disrupting effect on the animals, could be include us, that eat it in the same way that Roundup does. And if you think about that, that is a deeply shocking thing because it means that the whole world, really, if you include Roundup, is in a, a long-term feeding trial, except that with rats who have a metabolism, I think, over 20 times faster than us, which is why we use them as laboratory animals, we can fast forward the outcomes, whereas we have got a much longer term thing going, which means that our negative health outcomes aren't going to, go, aren't going to show until midlife. So I just want us all to absorb this for a moment because we're giving people a lot of information and, and the concerns that the study raises are the magnitude of the increased incidence of breast cancer when we are in the middle of an epidemic of breast cancer. And as you know, one of our core pieces of work at Commonweal for the last 28 years is doing week-long retreats for young women with metastatic breast cancer who are trying to figure out how to say goodbye to their children, right? So that's what I've done for 28 years. So yeah. the, this is not an abstract issue for me, and it's not an abstract issue for the young women who come here. And so here we are having created a global food system based on GMOs, with almost no scientific study, long enough term study, of what the impact of these GMO foods are. So talk about potentially 
catastrophic health issues. This Seralini study is at the heart of a very profound question. And, and I, I just thought it was useful to bring this out in the fullness of its significance because yes. you have been a central guiding figure in the effort to pull together uh, resources and foundations and others who are trying to move this mm. issue, this critical issue forward. Mm. Yeah. And just as, as you yeah. speak then, it just occurs to me, if you think about the major <laughs> attention which is given to the latest cancer treatment, right? I mean, the vast sums of public money right. that are put into right. research in that field. And Lady Balfour, the founder of the Soil Association, said, instead of treating the symptoms of disease, we should be investigating the causes of health. Mm -hmm. Well, if the causes of health are sound agriculture, mm -hmm. think of the savings that could be made, let alone all the suffering and horrible things. I mean, yeah. it is incredible that this... By the way, if somebody wrote a cheque today and said, OK, I'll fund a replica of the Seralini study, and by the way, the, even the European Food Standards Agency have now come up very recently, in the last three weeks, with criteria which anybody who did that work should base their study on. And interestingly, and this is also another, I don't know if you'd seen this, but it more or less mirrors the approach that Seralini himself took. So to some extent, Seralini's approach has been vindicated even in relation to the number of rats in the study because <laughs> it, the, the, the European Food Standards Agency say that just because the, the, if the study was designed to look at one thing but there are unexpected outcomes, they still shouldn't be dismissed. If, it, if the study, you know, shows that there's cause for concern. So I thought that was interesting. But if that study was commissioned, you could, you could reliably expect it'll be another four years before the two-year study is designed, commissioned, undertaken, put through peer review, and then finally published. So there's a very long lead time on this. Right. One of the things that Tom and I share an interest in um, um, is part of the Regenerative Design Institute at the Commonwealth Garden and these wonderful uh, young uh, people who have, are here today who have been part of a permaculture uh, uh, study program. And we run across it a lot. There's, for me personally, I am so moved by what's happening with young people and this whole movement of people in their 20s and 30s who call themselves part of the maker movement in the United States, it's called that. Uh, but there's a movement back onto the land, and there's a movement called the maker movement, which both combines sort of high-tech creativity with an interest in crafts and traditional forms of organic agriculture and so forth. And I feel like myself, that this generation is the generation that we've been waiting for because the, inter the intervening generations were not so interested. But there's this potential for dialogue, which is not yet really connected, in my judgment. But what deeply troubles me is how difficult it is, like when I moved out to Bolinas in 1972 as part of that Back to the Land movement, you could buy a house out here for $30,000, all right? Now, the lowest price house is probably 800000 or something like that. So these young people who want to get back to the land and do this are having a terribly difficult time finding land and space where they can actually do this work, where they can build this. 
And so this whole question of how we train, how we support this, I mean, just if, if, if sustainable agriculture is going to feed the world, then what is more important than creating training opportunities for young people who want to do this work? And what's more important than creating means for them to somehow get onto pieces of land where they can actually start creating the scalable models that you just said are the key to this whole thing. What are your thoughts on that? Um, my thoughts are that I completely agree with you that it is so exciting. Yeah. Uh, the clear, I don't know, this emergence of a, of a generation of young people who really seem to, it's almost as if they've absorbed something, mm -hmm. some, you know, it's not entirely, you feel as if it's come, coming up right. through them in some interesting way, because yeah. it reminds me of being in my early 20s. Absolutely. So it's, it's just, it's so exciting. We've been waiting for them. Yeah. For 40 years. And they're here. And they're here. Yeah. And just in time, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, before we yeah. disappear, it's nice yeah. to see them. Yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're the binge generation. Right. We screwed it all up. And now... We screwed it up. <laughs> we're handing it over to them to And they actually out. want to do it. I mean, we were better at talking about it, you know. <laughs> but they actually want to do it, you know. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And uh, how to identify the knowledge that is already out there, because there are... Mm -hmm. practicing farms and farmers mm -hmm. who are carriers of this knowledge, how to mm -hmm. transfer that uh, to the rising generation who want to take this mm -hmm. challenge on mm -hmm. is a, cre a crucial um, task and a challenge. And I mm -hmm. think that to a large degree that will be done by the farmers, mm -hmm. not necessarily by the academics and the people who are in their heads who probably in some, some cases have hardly been on farms mm -hmm. and who have a rather negative attitude towards practitioners. I think inspiration through practice is the way in which this is going to take place. And I, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, a project, an, embryon, an embryonic project of the Sustainable Food Trust, which is to create a global network of beacon farms which would act as an educational resource, both for the next generation, but also for existing farmers and the public to derive inspiration, which would inform their, you know, the, the way they take things forward. Because I think that if we could create a sense of community between all the farms that are already doing this good work and make them accessible, both virtually and physically, to people who are interested, this would be an amazing educational resource. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, I was in Sweden a few weeks ago. Um, we had an open space workshop where I brought this idea and it just, you could feel that there was a real energy about the discussion and several other organisations that already have existing networks in um, different parts of Europe immediately said, well, we'll, we'll bring our farms and you know, let them be included in this network. And we were working on this idea of having a map where all the farms of different scales, so they mustn't all be one particular type, they have to mm -hmm. reflect reality, can be accessible virtually on the internet and then people could find their own, own way to them. Mm -hmm. um, as you travel around, how widespread is this movement that we see in the United States and the UK of young people who want to get back to the land and, and farm and do organic agriculture? How widespread do you find that to be? I think the campus movement in, in the US seems to be ahead of the UK. Mm -hmm. I think there are signs now that the, there is a, a, 
The same thing is happening in the UK. We're just a bit further behind. What about the rest of the European Union? I think there are a lot. There, are, I think it's it's strong and getting stronger. Uh-huh. And I when you travel in everywhere. other parts of the world, do you see any of that as well or not? Yeah, I think it's. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Okay. It's it's. I feel that it's emerging everywhere, but no doubt, uh, I, I, I don't feel as if I have enough knowledge to really say. I can't give you a sort of an inventory of all the different countries, mm-hmm. but the feeling is that. Because it's a generational thing, it's a bit like the 60s movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember coming here and thinking, this is just, this is not uh, confined to national boundaries. Mm-hmm. This feeling of consciousness change, which I felt was very strong at the end of the 60s, uh, I think it's the same energy afoot. You know, one thing that's different now is this, I mentioned what is called in the United States, I don't know if you've heard of it, the maker movement in the United States. Well, it's very interesting. It's a part of a broader cultural phenomenon called DIY, do it yourself. And DIY, I think, grew in part out of the economic reality that young people are growing into that they don't have any money, they don't have jobs, anything else. And so this DIY, do it yourself movement came about where you know, if you need to put a new liner around your windshield, you figure out how to do that. Or if you know, you know, not trusting experts, just figuring it out. You know, making it yourself, do it yourself. So the maker movement has two main themes. One is the back to the land organic farming thing, but also is a deep interest in high tech ways of making high tech stuff. And there's a fascinating study by the former editor of Wired magazine called The Maker Movement or The Maker Community. Forget the name of the book exactly. But what he said, which is just so intriguing, is that what the maker movement represents at the high tech end is that with the new technology tools, people can fabricate furniture or all kinds of things made to order in small batches. And so the maker movement is taking the means of production back into its own hands. And it is creating these maker spaces around the country. Uh, There are people interested in doing one in West Marin. Mm. There's one up in Sonoma. They're in Seattle. They're all over. These maker spaces where the technological tools are put together and people can come in and make all kinds of stuff. So uh, this author believes that this is a a fundamental shift point that instead of outsourcing everything to China and so forth, because the means of production, the new technologies make it possible to do small batch stuff, that instead of mass production, you're getting these local things, the equivalent of the local farms, the local production of things that don't any longer need to be outsourced with long vulnerable supply chains and can be made close to home to fit specific needs. So I just think it's a fascinating relationship between the maker movement and the back to the land organic movement, and the young people that I meet are, you know, uh, are directly interested in both of these things and don't see them as separate. No, and I think there's another, there's a parallel also in the renewable energy yes. uh, movement or whatever right. you want to call it. But who would have thought that a decade ago, particularly in Europe, because of the so-called feed-in tariffs, mm-hmm. which are energy um, effectively subsidies which are derived from indirectly from fossil fuel energy which make it now highly profitable with very short payback times so there's a business case to put solar pv if you're a farmer or even a small householder and in germany now i think 
on a hot summer's day, more than 50% of the energy that's generated, electricity that's generated, is renewable. And who would have imagined a decade ago that that would have been possible, that there would be a decentralised, smart, uh, local energy economy emerging? So the question now is, can we do that for food and scale it? And I think the point you make about technology is interesting because it's important that we shouldn't reject technology in the sustainable agriculture movement. And uh, I've spoken a lot about GM. You mentioned the campaign, the GM, anti-GM campaign uh, that the Soil Association ran. And I always used to say at the top of my talks that I don't have a theological objection to genetic engineering. Uh, I started agnostic. But I looked at the issues and concluded after a lot of reflection and study that it didn't have a place in agriculture because it was treating the symptoms rather than the causes of the problems all um, the first generation of genetically modified crops. And I suspect the second generation too are treating the symptoms of the, of the problems from bad agricultural practice rather than getting to the root cause and changing the practice. So we don't really need genetic engineering quite apart from the narrowing of the gene pool uh, because there's a better alternative way. Now, if you can apply that sort of thinking to all technologies, reject the ones that don't serve the public interest, but include the ones that do, then that's the way we should be assessing these things. Yeah. I don't think you're being excessive in your critique of GMO foods. I, you know, I've been studying, as you have, this stuff for 40 years, and at a certain point, your intuitions about where the science is headed become quite predictive. And I would be willing to say that five years from now, the science on the health risks of GMOs will be out there. I just believe it. I think that's right. I think Seralini, it was a flawed study, but I believe that five years from now... It wasn't now, a flawed study. Mm -hmm. It was a flawed presentation, and the study might have been better designed, but it was... Let's just remember... He did it. He did it. He's, he's a Frenchman. Yeah. He may have a, one or two human frailties. Who hasn't? Uh, but he had the courage to challenge an orthodoxy. And I think anybody who has the courage, courage to challenge an orthodoxy and take the flack uh, should be admired. I admire him, and I would say that a study that had the defects you describe is a flawed study. So it's a question of language. So yeah, okay. but w whichever right. way we say it, I just I think it, it goes into the, you know, yeah. what is a flawed study? I'm, in a, I'm a flawed human hey, being. Hey, sign me up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is there ever a perfect scientific study? No. Uh, his study showed something which needed to be shown, which had never been done before. I agree. So I'm, you know, I just think language is important about language these Language is important. As you say somewhere, you come from a long line of Balliol scholars, but you've got no training in particular. So somehow that Balliol... Heritage came back, and you're debating and conversational skills. So, well. you, you serve well in that regard. So, I want to uh, take one more piece of this uh, sustainable ag thing, and then shift to to another question. You know, we see the current system. Uh, as you said, it's unsustainable, uh, and it looks unstoppable. But in reality, it will stop. Yeah. And you've said, and I think this is the point I wanted to that we're one Katrina or one oil crisis or one climate change issue away from, in other words, breakdown 
in, may come. And people have an awareness of this, and I think part of the movement back to the land is people have an intuitive sense yeah. that, geez, if the food system breaks down, I want to be able to feed my family and feed my community. And so there's that intuitive sense that this isn't just gentleman farming. This isn't you know, just some game. This is, I want to be part of a community where we can raise the food because we don't know when we may, not, we may need to be able to do that. Yeah, it's like animals yeah. that know when the tsunami is coming. Exactly, exactly. And uh, somehow there's a, a sense that our existing food systems are extremely fragile. Yeah, yeah. But uh, if history is a teacher, um, mostly we wait until we're virtually over the cliff edge before That's right. there's organized uh, action. Yeah. And I think that um, those of us that are our mindful of the, mm -hmm. the fragility of our food systems uh, have a responsibility to do everything we possibly can to prepare for the future and to work in a coordinated way to do that even though we if we're honest know that probably it'll take a series of shocks maybe something we didn't even expect mm -hmm. before society as a whole wakes up to it and we have a you know top-down action but I think we can do a lot from the bottom up, and especially in view of what you just said mm. about this sort of smart, decentralized systems, which maybe are scalable. But that, I think, is a big discussion point. Yeah. Because how much have we, the food movement, really thought deeply about the design of the food systems which will be needed to replace the one we've got, for instance, for farmers in the Midwest, have we imagined that food system in a creative and strategic way? Because if confronted with a collapse, ordinary citizens think, well, I'm getting the food. It's coming through Walmart or wherever it's coming, and it's at the end of this long chain. And these guys in the, who are, you know, Cassandra's are kind of saying, you know, doom is coming soon and there's going to be a terrible collapse. But they haven't got an alternative proposition to put in its place. Then are, there, are, are they going to be listened to? Yeah. So I think this is a new challenge for us now to get actively involved with scaling in a right way the food systems that we've designed in prototype, you know, the CSAs and the farmers markets. But can we think of ways in which they can then be organized to, to cope with, let's say, if you were right, what you said, that within five years the whole GM thing um, just comes off the rails. What are all those Midwest farmers going to do? Yeah, it's a big issue. It's a huge issue. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to a conversation with Patrick Holden and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. So I want to shift. Um, and I asked you before if I could ask you about this, but you've been involved with what's called the Gurdjieff work for a long time. Um, for those who don't know what the Gurdjieff work is, can you say a little about it and then say what role in your inner life and in the work you do in the world the Gurdjieff work has uh, played for you? Well, I don't normally speak about this, and I won't say a lot now, uh, but I will say this, um, that I think that spiritual search um, is not something to be ashamed of, and that the search for meaning and to try to make sense of one's existence mm -hmm. and to ask these questions mm -hmm. is something that um, 
is becoming and important, certainly for me, even if I can't always reach the, uh, the answers. But that inner search, I think, and the spiritual dimension of things uh, is related to the current ecological crisis. The current ecological crisis, you could say, is a crisis of meaning. So if that is the case, the solution, the material solutions to, say, the food, the industrialization of our food systems needs to be accompanied by a parallel inner journey. And I had a search. I come from missionary stock. Uh, my great-grandfather was a bishop in Tasmania, and my grandfather on the other side was a missionary in India. And, um, in which tradition? Anglican. So the, the, I've got Anglican genes and genetic resonances, but somehow, although I go to Evensong at Westminster Abbey whenever I'm around, or, and I always take my, I've got four young boys, and they all, we, I always take them to St. David's Cathedral at Christmas, because mm -hmm. for me, the, the, there are truths in the Christian tradition, um, and I think that all the great faith pathways are connected, but my search took me in other directions. I was interested in anthroposophy and Steiner's work, of course, I studied biodynamic agriculture. I was also used to go to the Krishnamurti talks every year when he was alive. Um, and he has a school here, still in California, doesn't he, at Ojai. Mm -hmm. um, and I came across the Gurdjieff teachings in the 70s. And I would say that the teaching is a sort of fusion of East and West. Um, and uh, his method, if you can call it a method, is based on an, um, uh, a view that as we normally are, we operate on a fairly low level, a rather mechanical level, and, that, and our, our centers, our intellectual, our emotional, and our physical centers are not well connected. And that um, it's possible to work on this. Um, and uh, I've, been, I've been connected with the Gurdjieff work for some time, for well, over 30 years. Thank and, you. It, and it means a lot to me. Uh, but I think it's, it's something which should be spoken about in the same way that now it's okay to say I'm going to a yoga class or a meditation retreat. I go on a retreat every year. But I think it can also be, in the end, it is a private search Absolutely. and a personal search. And thank you for allowing me to ask you that. I, just, I, I find it useful in these conversations to ground them in the spiritual sources from which we do our work. And um, I consider myself a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic Sufi. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's my story. But not a, but not a spiritual tourist. <laughs> not a spiritual tourist. Those are the five traditions that uh, have informed my own uh, search. And uh, um, so, um, I'd like now to open the conversation up to this interesting community here and start with my friend and colleague, Nicolette Han Nyman, if you're here. Nicolette, any, as you listen to this, any thoughts or reflections? I did. I mean, first of all, I, I thought the conversation was fabulous and there was so much, it was so rich, there was so much. But um, the thing that jumped at me the most was when you talked about the fact that we've reached a ceiling and we won't break through that 5% or whatever ceiling in terms of making this a truly broad-based way of producing food. 
where all food is produced in a sustainable way, which I think is essential for the long-term future of human survival, um, if we approach this in a way of sort of demonizing and polarizing the two camps. And um, so my question, and I completely agree, but I want to know what is your advice as far as the practical approach? How does the food movement, the sustainable movement, not do that and yet speak the truths? For example, about GMOs. How do you speak the truth about GMOs and yet not demonize? Um, I think it is, I'm in therapy uh, for my anger management. <laughs> on a bad day, it doesn't seem to be working. Uh, but I do think it's possible to, um, as I feel we need to do, uh, have a, 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 an attitude of constructive engagement with people who don't share our thinking. Um, but it is possible to do that in a friendly way, but still be intellectually rigorous. And I think that's part of my work to engage with people whose views I don't necessarily share and then to debate with them without making them feel that I'm, you know, I have a sort of view of them which is negative. And uh, I was up at the um, uh, Heirloom Festival yesterday, uh, yesterday evening, and uh, was at a talk there and a guy got up and he said, this is war. And I just... <coughs> said I didn't think that that was helpful because it just creates more polarity. But um, I've been thinking a lot about how we could create like a journey towards more sustainability which was inclusive. And the way I was thinking of it was that I want to know that on my farm each year I make some progress. So if you could imagine like a scoring system or something like that, which you could even self-assess, like, you, you know, because we have in the UK, we have a tax system where you can, you know, it's, you do it online, but you obviously have to tell the truth. Otherwise, you get held to account. So you could even, I think the problem with organic certification is it's become very procedural, um, tick box and uh, expensive and bureaucratic, and it doesn't make you feel very good. I mean, we're, we are certified farm and when the inspector comes it makes you feel that the inspector's looking for trouble if you know what I mean uh, rather than you know finding the good things so I'm thinking could we have a scoring system where we categorize the, the key principles of sustainability or the key elements of sustainability um, emissions and you know nutrient recycling and all the various things and we score ourselves, or we are scored, and then there can be market thresholds. So I'm not trying to diss the organic market. I mean, I was part of building the organic market, but I think that we need to recognize that we need to be self-critical about the limits of the system that we've created and think of a way in which we can include rather than exclude people who have been not part of it before now. And I think one way of doing that will be to have thresholds and to say, Everybody's on this journey, as you said, towards more sustainable farming, and let's celebrate each step along the ladder. So it's something along those lines. And I think this can't be foisted on the world by one organisation. It needs to be a collective discussion where we all work towards a solution. I'd like to come back to Tom Sargent again for any reflection you have, and you've done a lot of work in this area. Um, Patrick, <coughs> you know, thank you. Thank you, Michael. I think it was really a great... Um, uh, dialogue. Uh, I think that going back to just that question I had a little earlier about um, 
how how we do the transition, how we uh, because as as we're fighting the good battle of um, against uh, the, um, the the industrial agricultural um, paradigm, let's say, how do we try to bring in uh, over time and over the the ways in which uh, a new agriculture can be envisioned? Um, because because we, 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 we know that if we we know that if a policy came in and prohibited uh, GMOs or prohibited uh, certain forms of agricultural production at this point, uh, there would be uh, you know I would assume massive um, uh, problems in the food chain. Well, you asked me earlier about the barriers to change, mm -hmm. and one that I would have forgot to mention, but I think needs mention at this point is. Uh, the absence of an economically favorable climate for sustainable food production. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, if you are a businessman and you're going into farming and you're looking for a business case, the best business case will be exploitative industrial farming. And if you're a food processor or retailer, the same thing applies. And that is because the polluter doesn't pay and the damaging negative outcomes, financial outcomes, from your farming practice, you're not being charged for them. They're externalized. They're externalized. So it's emissions, like for instance, 50% of all the emissions from primary agriculture come from indirectly and directly from the use of nitrogen fertilizer. From the energy made to manufacture it, from the nitrous oxide released, both during its manufacture and when it's applied to the land. And then there's probably more emissions than that in the way that the use of nitrogen has been the principal reason why the soil organic matter carbon bank has diminished over the last century. If you add all that up, it's massive, but farmers are not charged for those emissions or for the pollution of nitrates in the drinking water, which is then cleaned up by the water companies. So what we need to do is to put a price on the damaged cause in the various categories of externalities, which is what the economists call it. So that's emissions, natural capital, pollution, impact on biodiversity, impact on public health. It may be that, as you said earlier, that the GM thing is one, will, will be seen to be one of the biggest externalities of all. And once we've got a price on all the damage caused, we can then put our minds to developing policy instruments, and they're not just sticks, in other words, taxes or something like that, but they could also be carrots, to penalise financially farming practices which are damaging and reward farming practices which deliver beneficial outcomes. So, for instance, farmers could be paid to be carbon stewards. If you are farming in such a way that you either maintain the soil carbon bank or you increase it, then you could get a carbon payment each year for being a carbon steward as a farmer. If you put all that together, you could tip the balance in favour of sustainable food production systems being no less economically rewarding than conventional. And for the public, it would make sustainably produced food more affordable. So I think that this is, until we put this right, we're not going to get the change that's needed. We're organising a three-day event in London uh, the beginning of December the third day of which will be a public conference on true cost accounting in food and farming. And that, I think, is the beginning of a process, because we're not 
you know, we, we, we haven't got the evidence. This is going to require experts, research institutes, all over the world collaborating to, to get this information, mm -hmm. to collect this information. Yeah. So I'm excited by that. That's very important. I want to ask some <coughs> of the future farmers of America who are sitting in the back row who are uh, thinking about this. We've spoken about you, our hopes for you, our, our, our hope that you will be able to pull this off. Are there any of you who are willing to take the risk of of commenting on the conversation, we'd really welcome it. Not to put anybody on the spot, but if any of you have anything you'd like to say or ask, it would be extremely welcome. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. I'm curious as to whether, you know, we were talking about this, um, sort of the future of where things are going from here and the change of the means of production and, and things like that. I'm wondering if the, the system that we have in place now with large corporations, if that is going to stay around and just change what they're producing in organic food and things of that nature, and can that taint it and sort of, you know, address that, that issue? I think that is a very interesting question. It kind of relates to, you know... The scale issue we talked about. The scale issue and also criticism of, you know, the industrialization of organic farming right. or, or a sort of generic critique of big food companies or mm -hmm. big companies. Mm -hmm. I think that the companies that are smart will adapt and the companies that don't will disappear. Um, I think it's inevitable that we'll have large companies involved in being part of this change. Um, and, I mean, taking Whole Foods as an example, it's great that they've set this 2018 date after which uh, genetically engineered ingredients are going to have to be labelled. And maybe I've got this wrong, but I think that they have a sourcing policy which is to a degree regionalized, or rather their purchasing policy is regionalized, <coughs> even, even if their sourcing policy isn't yet. Mm -hmm. So they could go further if the cust their own customer base demands it. And that's one of the things that I think is really important to remember, that we, as individual citizens, are the powerful ones. Because if we make a commitment to ourselves that of our per capita spending of whatever it is, uh, £2,000 a year is the figure I've heard in the UK each of us spends on food. If we make a commitment to purchase in relation to staple foods, foods that come from near to us with a known story, ideally a recognisable producer and a sustainable story behind them, even if we were to purchase 20% of our food with that specification, then all those big companies would have to change their practices. So I think, you know, they, I think that they should be included, uh, but they need to feel the heat. So I think that raises an, an ethical dilemma then. Is it, is it sort of a, a better decision to make to buy organic from the larger corporations so that you influence their dollar amount to make them produce more or you know, buy more organic goods? Or was it better to sort of avoid them altogether and go for the, the, the smaller markets you know, and, and buying from, from smaller companies? I think everyone has to reach their own conclusion about that. I mean, I sometimes buy from big supermarkets. I sometimes buy non-organic food when I'm desperate. Um, and in an ideal world uh, where I can, I preferentially go to the artisan producers who are actually selling the food directly. Uh, there are many advantages from that. I'd rather do that just because I think you know, you're more likely to get 
really good food and you support the local economy. But I don't think we should create uh, a really big argument as to whether, you know, people often say, is it better to buy an organic apple from the other side of the world or a local apple which has been sprayed? I'm not really sure whether that's a sensible kind of thing to raise because people, people, people are not stupid. They can, they can make those, those sort of... And the answer, of course, is you, you want to buy local and organic or sustainable. Um, and when there's a difficulty, you have to make your own. You have to make your own way through. But I think that if we give uh, people en enough information of a high quality, they'll, they'll make good choices. Other questions from people from the young farming group, young ag people. I just really love to hear your thoughts. So, anybody else have any thoughts or questions? Yes. Um, so I just heard a very inspiring talk by. Um, Paul Kaiser from Singing Frogs Farm. He's in Sebastopol. But he's, um, he's been doing a no-till farming system with vegetables. And his organic matter in the soil has increased up to the 6 to 8% range within a matter of seven years. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on tillage versus no-tillage. Is that a widespread thought? Um, I think that no-till systems are much easier in arid or relatively dry areas. Um, on Prince Charles's farm, uh, the farmer there who's the manager, who's called David Wilson, has been doing a no-till experiment for the last six or seven years where he's using a German machine um, during the arable phase of the rotation between the arable crops with, with some success. But if you get a really wet year, then it are quite some big problems with weeds. And um, I think that it's possible to build organic matter even if you use the plough. As long as you plough shallow and you use crop rotation with a fertility building phase. And I think this is one of the big changes that we're going to see in farming if, if we're going to go more sustainable, all these all-arable farms are going to bring in livestock again because only ruminants can digest the cellulose of the fertility-building grass and clover or equivalent that is needed during the fertility-building phase of the rotation. So I think the, the answer is we should plough less, min till where possible, and plough shallow, but especially we should reintroduce crop rotations to build fertility and then we won't need some nitrogen fertilizer and then the soil organic matter levels will go up i mean i don't know it will vary between soils and zones as to what level you can peak at but it's for sure that it will go up from where it is now we have these two wonderful colleagues from australia here i don't know if either of you have any reflections or comments or if this is relevant to your life and work but if you have any thoughts we you really interested in that? Uh, yeah, well, it was a very interesting talk. Um, wondering when you're coming to Australia. <laughs> February. February? Right. North Australia? Is that an invitation? I think your conversation is, um, is pertinent in the, in the context that um, Indigenous people who own much of Northern Australia are faced with your typical sort of industrial agricultural expansion as well as other things, mining and so forth. 
And I think whilst we're not an agricultural, traditional agricultural society, having information and uh, other ways of thinking about things and influencing uh, some of these other large things going on would be very useful. I would love to come and I was with Tom, as he mentioned, in northern Kenya um, last year um, at a festival, a cultural festival, with, I think, how many were there, 17 tribes or something like that, uh, all nomadic pastoralists. And what really struck me about that experience was it, it, it made me really see how, if you look at food and the different ways of producing food. On the one extreme, there's hunter-gathering, which I guess Aboriginal peoples were all. And then you get into nomadic pastoralism and then settled agriculture, and then gradually, gradually up the, the gradient until eventually you come a monoculture-intensive. And the monoculture-intensive is to totally violate nature, whereas hunter-gathering and nomadic pastoralism are really just working with nature. And I guess the, if you could see agriculture like that, you, the question which is in front of all of us now is what degree of intervention is needed in different you know, regions of the world to strike the right balance, but also to get enough food? And I think this is a, a question which is going to be... Obviously, there are different contexts, because where we were in northern Kenya, I just thought it was an amazingly efficient way of getting enough food. I just, I just couldn't believe how good it was. And I didn't realise that I think it's over 10% of the population of Kenya are still nomadic pastoralists. I thought it was just something in geography books. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible. So I, I think this is a really important discussion. And probably um, people who have understanding of living with nature probably will, their knowledge needs to inform agricultural practices of the future. That's my feeling about it. I think the, just to follow on from Joe's point, I think the, the kind of uh, context we're facing is uh, in, the, in the broad political um, arena and, and as well as in the development with the world food security issues, which seemingly is being used as the kind of um, main excuse to um, expand large industrial type farming. Um, practices is that um, um, we've had a number of we've had the Asian Century White Paper in Australia, which is uh, by a senior um, ex head of fund of the Treasury Department um, for the previous government about in preparation for um, the um, future trade with mm -hmm. Asia, uh, and secondly the um, um, the Northern Development Task Force in relation to water use, um, which is the uh, one of the biggest issues confronting us. But on the other hand, the points that you've raised up with Joseph are very pertinent because uh, we have one of the highest mortality rates and that's a result, as a result of diet. Yeah. Um, and diabetes is, is rife. Yeah. Um, mm. And a whole range of other uh, normal preventable diseases, but uh, it's as a result of lifestyle and, and mainly it comes through a, a diet issue in terms of uh, what is uh, and, a, um, and a, a disconnection from a traditional, that hunter-gatherer traditional kind of um, lifestyle. Um, so I think uh, it's very pertinent in terms of what um, what's, what the debate, where it requires to be at. Because when we were in Kenya, uh, there was, you know, I was asked this question about whether, because their lands are being encroached upon by land grab a lot, or other 
forms of acquisition. I was asking some of them whether they were whether there was an increase in settled agriculture, and they said that there was. So some of them are they're still practicing nomadic pastoralism, but they're also growing crops around their villages. So that's kind of maybe that's a kind of relevant issue for some of the people that you represent. That the issue is not just to go to a Western diet which makes you sick, but actually to you know, maybe there are some other, you know, innovations that could be could be thought about in your context. Obviously, I don't know that. Well, well we we know some pretty preeminent kind of. Um, this is a acquaintance of mine, a Chinese agricultural scientist, whose view is that it's more towards the natural kind of bush tucker type crops that where the niche yeah. area for the markets is within the. Um, he, 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 Really, just believes that the broadacre farming um, um, is um, not to the advantage of the Aboriginal community in relation to dealing with future markets. My friend and colleague, Dr. Cynthia Lee, is an integrative medicine, functional medicine practitioner in Berkeley. And Cynthia, uh, from the point of view of someone who works extensively with patients for whom nutrition is a critical intervention. Um, uh, as you listen to this talk, I, I was thinking myself that some of your patients seem to do well on a, a diet that has emerged. Uh, you know, I've been studying nutrition for 40 years, but one of the new areas that people are working on is a so-called paleolithic diet or neo-paleolithic diet. Uh, and some of your patients do surprisingly well when they shift in that direction. So I just wondered, as you've listened to this, whether you had any reflections as a physician who is actually practicing uh, with people whose health is often very severely compromised by. Right. I mean, I think it's. Um, I think it's. I mean, kind of going back to what you were saying about trying to help people just reconnect with really basic things about what creates health. You know, a lot of us have just been grown up in kind of these, you know, microclimates of, uh, of ignorance in a way. We've just been disconnected uh, in an urban setting. And so it's really just like, hey, you know what? Go for a walk out in nature. You know, it's good for your nervous system. You know, we can we can sort of scientificize it so it doesn't become sort of a my philosophy versus, you know, somebody else's philosophy. Or, you know, if you eat real food, your genes <coughs> understand what that is as opposed to processed foods and things like that. And so... It, it is trying to get people to reconnect also to the land and ultimately to where to, you know, so, the, you know, the paleo diet has become very, you know, faddish and there are issues with that. But the godsend of that is that it's sort of gotten into the younger generations where they're like, hey, we feel really healthy. And the paleo diet's been very, very focused on sourcing the food. And why is that healthier than the Atkins diet, which is another low-carbohydrate low, low diet? And, you know, it, it's really going back to, you know, healthier sources of food. And so in that sense, it's been really helpful. And I think just removing sort of the processed, you know, uh, foods and the chemicals has been really healing to people, particular to their guts. Um, but one question actually I had was, and actually it's for any formalist uh, really in the room, is, you know, I was thinking of the parallels between being an integrative doctor and sort of, you know, being a... Uh, a sustainable farmer and just you know I see it I hear it all the time because you know our main goal is to really be a healthy species
species and to be connected with our land. But, you know, as sort of pioneers in these really small niches, you, you get you develop this very fighter mentality. Well, we got to fight, you know, the mainstream. Um, but the real healing begins if we can mainstream it, if there's cross-dialogue. And so I'm interested in kind of the, um, you know, the energy and the, the mentality. Is there a real collaborative kind of dialogue beginning? Are there forums for that? Um, just as, you know, I mean, I, I hear a lot from my colleagues in integrativeness, and, you know, oh, they're encroaching on our territory, you know, if they start talking about gluten. And I said, whoa, hold on a second. We're trying to, like, mainstream this. You know, it's not, it's not them or us, but you kind of get in that mentality when you're, when you're fighting. And so in integrative medicine, there's a, or in functional medicine, actually, which is what I practice, is even smaller. But there's a real, there's an organization now that's really trying to mainstream it by pr trying to provide tools for doctors who are not in, you know, in an integrative practice, but in mainstream practice with 15, 20 minutes for patients, trying to just at least provide tools that they can then use. And, you know, then it begins to kind of change consciousness um, of the practitioner and the, and the patient as well. So I was just kind of curious, is it still sort of a real bulldog, you know, kind of, you know, they versus us uh, mentality, or is there really beginning to become, you know, a dialogue where, hey, we're all you know, trying to be farmers in the best way possible and, and kind of unifying the, the effort there. Do you mean specifically in relation to um, veterinary medicine, for instance, with the treatment of livestock? Because I've, I've got a sort of, got a story, I've got a story to share there. Incredibly helpful. Well, um, there's a big issue about antibiotics and the fact that 80%, I think it is, in the US of all antibiotics are used in livestock, and only 20% for human medicine. And in the UK, it's much less than that, but it's still over, I think it's just over 50% of all the antibiotics that are used in the UK go to farmed animals. Um, and our chief medical officer has just spoken publicly about the growing threat of the transfer of, uh, from animals of antibiotic resistance to superbugs like MRSA and other hospital infections that are now immune to some of the uh, widely used antibiotics. And so this has now stimulated a discussion within the farming veterinary world as to whether they should cut down on the use of antibiotics for farmed animals, which is very interesting because we've always had a, we have a vet and the vet is a conventional vet just from our local town. And I think they've always, I mean, most vets make nearly all their money from the sale of drugs. So we're a little bit of a threat to them anyway, because, you know, I mean, we don't use antibiotics in our, the udders of our cows, whereas conventional dairy farmers always use antibiotics in the udders of their cows. So I think we're, you know, we deny them sales um, but it's more than that. There's, uh, their attitude is you're slightly, you know, unreconstructed. You, you have a, 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 you know, a, a Luddite view about, you know, modern science. And uh, actually, you might be putting your animals at risk and causing them to suffer unnecessarily. And there's been like a standoff between us. But now I think the fact that it's now become a public debate that actually we're you know, the problems arising from overuse of antibiotics has slightly shifted things, but it's, a, uh, it's hard to say uh, exactly how that's going to pan out. But I do agree with you that this is a huge issue. But again, it's sort of our attitude 
towards making sure that we build the bridges of understanding between the two communities rather than make it into a, into a battle. Right, because that's going to come from, from the sustainable food movement. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. Well, in the US, I think I'm right in saying, am I not, that you're not allowed to use antibiotics in an organic system, which is very interesting, because in the UK, we are. We're only, we're only allowed to use them, you know, not, not prophylactically, mm -hmm. although you could argue it slips into prophylaxis mm -hmm. among some farmers. Yeah. We have time for a few more questions, just opening it up. Any, any questions? Yes, right there. Um, my name is Willie Reed, and I'm a farmer. Uh, and uh, just to answer the last uh, person who spoke there, um, there's a guy at Stanford, his name is Dr. Christopher Gardner, and he's a nutritionist, and he's worked with uh, the government and, um, and with the cancer societies and the health, uh, the heart. Um, and he has gotten Stanford and a lot of their research to really open up to the idea that food does have a big effect on health. So that's something that's really happening down there. And Stanford recently was, uh, they just were granted two acres, the young farmers at Stanford were granted two acres for a, a, an organic farm. And so Christopher Gardner has been instrumental in getting that off the ground. So there is some movement at Stanford. So uh, they have a food summit, which will be its third year this year hmm. down there. And um, so I encourage you to, to join forces with them. Um, down there at Stanford. Thank you. Great comment. Just one thing that I would like to say about uh, nutrition and health is that as a dairy farmer, you have the daily opportunity to notice the direct link between what the cows eat and their health. And it's really noticeable sometimes if we turn our cows into a field of particularly lush and nutritious grass from some particular fields, that they can have a bloom on their coat even within 12 hours of having gone into that field. Mm. So the problem with human medicine is because the health outcomes are much more, you know, there are other factors, but also because we're, they're not so direct, we fail to have the opportunity to notice that very direct link between diet and health. I you know have a question? Not... Sorry, right back there and then Jean. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I, I'm the generation that is between the back to the landers and mm -hmm. um, and the young generation, and um, I'm also an academic, so I think that makes me a double um, problem, right? <laughs> um, um, but I I always tell my students that I feel like I'm the translator between these generations, and um, I'm very inspired by back to the land movement. And I with my students don't talk about going back to the land. I run an urban agriculture program at the University of San Francisco, and I, I think it's important to dig in wherever we are. And um, and I wanted to ask you a question about the sort of culture part of agriculture. Um, after many, many years of, of creating this program at the University of San Francisco, and to the point where our students know so much about growing food and are going out into different communities, and and going beyond, you know, the university after graduation and doing wonderful things with growing food, I've noticed that there's a disconnect with how we eat food. Um, and I, so I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out different ways that we can come together as communities to share food and eat together um, and make food together. And so I'm collecting stories now, and I'm curious in, in your world, 
is there any of that kind of movement going on within agriculture? Because for me, that's part of the cultural um, aspect of the agriculture movement. Do you mean like festivals or, or ceremonies or I mean or public, <coughs> public kitchens, um, food shares, um, and so people coming together? Um, right now, I, I moved to Bolinas about a year and a half ago, and um, folks who live here know we have one restaurant in this town. And it was shocking to me that there wasn't more um, sort of spaces. We have, we're surrounded by amazing food grown here. Um, and, and so I'm working with a couple people to do a food share where these monthly dinners, um, we open homes. Oh, yeah, we have that. Okay. Yeah, we have so pop-up restaurants. Okay, do you call yeah. it that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a big movement. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of connected with it, I guess. Yeah, I think... But not, not, it's not as far as what you're saying, is it? Well, I'm, I'm interested in trying to create systems that aren't about the exchange of money. Um, and so the, that would be the culture part of things. So I love pop-up restaurants. I think they're great. But I do think that there's sort of that still the stratification where there's an elitism to that kind of food sharing. Um, that not all pop-up restaurants are $100 plate. Um, but there is a lot of that going on in West, West Marin. And so um, we have food banks out here that do a fabulous job. And then we have this sort of higher end. Um, and I think there's this thing in the middle. And I think that comes down to where, a place where we share knowledge and that information and where we kind of get to... Um, what we've been calling this the mainstream. Um, and I'm just curious if there is that kind of thing that you're coming across that at all. I think it'll come to, I think it's yet another example of where California leads and the rest of the world follows, or Bellinus leads. <laughs> John Evans. Um, I've heard you talk about your cows in a really personal way. And I was noticing on your list of sustainable agriculture practices, caring and loving of animals. Can you talk just a minute about where that fits in terms of something happening that is articulate and specific and and um, enforceable in some way? Is there a code, Patrick? Is there something that people are becoming conscious about together, that loving of animals the way you have experienced it? I think there's a... Um, maybe... It, more than any other area, the, this disconnect between the truth about what happens to our farm animals, the story behind them, and the livestock products we eat, it's gone further in the wrong direction than any other. Um, and it's maybe partly because I had this um, potential apprentice from Salt Spring Island uh, who's working for Michael Abelman, who's the you're, you're not working with Michael Abelman? No, he's a friend. Okay, well, anyway, she works on his farm, and she, he emailed me and said, oh, she wants to come be a dairy apprentice um, on the farm this winter, and maybe it'll happen. But we had a Skype conversation a couple of days ago, and I did her bit, my best to put her off, and I said, you do know we're a dairy farm, and that, you know, dairy farming involves separating calves from their mothers and, you know, animals die and all that sort of stuff. Because I just wanted to make sure she didn't really, because she was doing vegetable production. I didn't know she... And maybe it's because of some of the things are difficult with animals, because it involves death, that we kind of shy away from, you know, I think it is, it's, I think it's really possible that if one is eating meat or a, a, a livestock product which involves the death of animals, 
to do so in a responsible way, but in a way you have to be mindful of the sacrifice of life. And that is quite a journey to take someone on, isn't it? Because if they just don't know anything about animals and they're just eating meat, and then as soon as they find out that animals suffer, they go, oh, I'm going to become a vegetarian or something like that. You've got to go beyond that and understand that, you know, sacrifice of life even that we could eat is part of the whole thing. And um, I think we've got a very, very long way to go on that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I suppose it... The, the thing is that it does demand um, really having a completely different attitude towards the animals that you look after if it's going to work on a bigger, bigger level. It's a, it's a huge transition, isn't it? Because in the, especially if you're in, in the industrial livestock, it's just gone so far in the wrong direction. Hmm. Patrick Holden, you've played such an important role in the sustainable food movement in the United Kingdom um, and, um, and your influence is felt uh, around the world and, and very much here in Northern California. Um, and I'm just so grateful to you for uh, 40 years uh, of work in this field and, and the clarity with which you've been able to um, teach um, about one of the greatest challenges that we face as human beings on this earth, which is uh, we all need to eat. There are seven billion of us. Uh, there's, as you say in work you've written, there may not be enough to eat in the future. We're destroying biodiversity with our food system. We're creating life-threatening illnesses. There are no simple solutions, but as you say, we are all in a position to influence change. And so at the Sustainable Food Trust, you seek to uh, build a food production system that causes the least possible harm to humans and the environment. Um, and the clarity with which you are able to articulate for us uh, here at the New School this afternoon what the great issues of our time are. Um, I think all of us, I know I uh, leave the afternoon inspired and hoping to continue to collaborate and work with you in the great work of your life. So thank you for being with us at the New School. You've been listening to a conversation with Patrick Holden and Michael Lerner on the global food movement. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.